CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. It's time once again for the Coin World Podcast. And we're so happy to be here. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark. And we are fresh off the Coin X, Coin X uh, Coin Show in St. Louis. I was delighted to have uh, been able to attend. Coin World had a booth at the show. And, uh, you know, I want to give a shout out to the folks who came up to me and introduced themselves upon recognizing me, hearing my voice and uh, saying kind things about the podcast. It's still sort of weird to to have that experience. It's not like I'm a, you know, an actor or a Hollywood guy or whatever. And, but uh, <laughs> thank you so much for listening. We do appreciate it. And uh, we, um, we have, I think, a great episode on tap for you as a reward for your continued support. And you mentioned Coin World was there. I'll bet you had a chance to encounter our sponsor, Coin World Plus, as well. Yes, uh, that was the uh, really the genesis of the um, reason that Coin World was there and had the booth, and they were uh, promoting that, announcing that. I did bring a coin to get added to the Coin World Plus registry, if you will, but it's a world coin and that is uh, not yet supported, but uh, it is something that's available for U.S. coins. So it's kind of fun, you know, check it out there for those folks who want to make their coins speak or give voice to their collection. It's kind of interesting what they're doing with the NFC technology and all that. You know, it's a great show. Like I say, you know, I I expect to get recognized at a coin show now, maybe Uh, St. Louisans. If I got recognized at a Schnucks or a Deerberg's, that would really be, that would throw me for a loop. And they know to what I'm referring, the grocery store, but uh, it was fun. We had a great time. Uh, met, I think, Keith from Coin Crew on YouTube. Met Kevin Markham, another another guy who's in the online space, and a um, couple others. I, I can't. I feel bad. I, I'm bad with names, and if I don't see it several times, but um, you know, we do again, honestly and thankfully, appreciate the folks for coming over. We got to talk about what people are working on, you know, collecting wise, what, uh, what they're doing in the social media space. So it it was a great time. And then, um, actually Saturday, I got to take my nephew to the show again. I took him back in July when there was another show at the same location. And I had seen at a booth coins of North Korea and I knew that he was sort of interested in that Highland. And if you're listening, I was surprised when he told me he listens uh, to the podcast. And uh, and so when we went back to that, when when we went to the booth, I went back to the booth with him on Saturday. I looked and they had sold. So unfortunately, Landon wasn't able to add that to his collection. He got uh, a coin from Israel and really neat um, German states coin from literally 399 years ago. 
Uh, and that was 20 bucks. I mean, you know, how cool is that? One of the questions Landon posed for me recently was, is it legal to own coins in North Korea? And, you know, can you buy and sell them? What, how does that work because of the situation, the U.S. and North Korea? And, and you know, the answer is no, it's not. But that hasn't stopped a lot of North Korean coins from entering the marketplace in the U.S. Now, you'll find if you go on eBay, for instance, you can't, as a buyer, you can't generally find coins of North Korea or Cuba Iran, even we've we've found out from uh, I found from a uh, a collector friend Facebook connection guy of mine who deals in Afghani coins. the The modern Afghani or, or any Afghani coin, eBay has problems with because they're you know who knows the people behind this. Um, apparently, they think that that's supporting the Taliban, even though I mean it's just like with the Cuban coins. The United States struck coins of Cuba for decades before the 1959 quote unquote revolution and Castro and all that. So, but for years, it's been uh, impossible generally to buy or sell coins of Cuba, say on eBay. And, and that's, that really is the, um, you know, the gargantuan, the, the Goliath in the room uh, and you know, if you can't buy them there, well then, I mean, even, even, uh, money processors like a PayPal, if you, if you put the word Cuba in the item description, uh, PayPal blocks the transactions we've, we've had collectors say, and, uh, I've never tried it cause I'm not selling coins, but, it, and why, you know, why would I invite potential problems in that way? But, you know, the reality is all these coins are out there in the marketplace. I, personally, I think coins of Cuba pre-1959 should be easy to buy and sell because they're American-made coins. And and uh, yes, they're for modern-day Cuba, but one can, one can collect coins of Cuba without supporting the current regime today and the longstanding regime. Uh, and... You know, North Korea, uh, you know, I've bought and sold, uh, I should say, I bought the coins of North Korea and I've seen them sold in at shows. I've seen dealer price list have them. So they're out there. You know, it just makes it a little more difficult to obtain. And certainly when people, you know, you, you can buy them at a show. Sure. You're going to be, you're going to have a harder time selling them in an online capacity, but some folks use weasel words to get around that. Like, uh, you know, Caribbean Island nation coin. And, you know, some of the bots online have gotten pretty advanced and, and detect some of that and, and pull those listings down on eBay. But, uh, I've seen, you know, Iran, Iranian coins referenced as Persian coins, uh, which, you know, is technically true. And that's, you know, sometimes those get pulled, sometimes they don't. It's, it's really a crapshoot. And so for general knowledge, anything post-1959, um, post-revolution Cuba, it does violate the trade embargo, uh, but you still see those items enter the country and, available for sale in limited capacities 
uh, here, uh, depending on the venue and the sale method and all that. So it was interesting to see, you know, I, I picked up some, not coins of Q, but I might've gotten a couple coins from Iran that were, you know, a century old. So that's way before the Shah and way before the, you know, the, the modern machinations of, of war and, and, um, you know, conflict. So why should there be any issue in collecting those artifacts? But, you know, we all know that common sense isn't too common in some cases. Well, I mean, and this is kind of dovetails a little bit what we were talking about with Peter Tompa in my mind, but also the question I have, and I think I know the answer to it, but I'm going to ask it anyway in case somebody also has the same question is, you're talking about coins. Does this also pertain to paper? Yep. Yeah. And I mean, you know, anything that has that word on it, you're going to have trouble finding it, selling it, buying it, whatever. I know. I mean, I've, I've carried in some, you know, a couple pieces that before I realized, oh crap, you know, this is problematic. And, you know, we eight years ago, five years ago, I don't know what it was. I, I saw them for sale in at the Berlin show. And I said, you know, this is a story, you know, these are the readily available here in Berlin, but you know, it's not something you can just hop on eBay or go to a U.S. coin show and find in that quantity. And then when I have been to the Beijing show twice now, the North Korean government agency basically, or partner agency has had a booth uh, selling coins slabbed by PCGS uh, obviously, the the slabbing was done by PCGS's Asian office. You know, these weren't they wouldn't have imported them to the U.S. for slabbing in California. But you know, they're out there, and there was actually the Wall Street Journal several years ago had an article, an interview with a guy who, an American who, uh, I don't know if he's an expat uh, or you know, he's just one of these rich guys that has houses and more than one place, but he's a big time collector of this stuff because he thinks eventually these will be legal to own because the, you know, the regime can't last forever. The conflict between the nations can't go on forever His is his supposition. And some of the stuff is rare. And some of the stuff is, I mean, there's, a, there's some North Korean coins that were made in the last five years that relate to very much to the diplomatic machinations of launching of, of test missiles and this and that, and, and their saber rattling of, um, you know, trying to, you know, basically promote North Korea's nuclear missile capabilities and contrast that with America as the bad guy. They're rather interesting, things that are out there, we can look back and, you know, at what point does the object lose its significance as an item connected with evil, right? I mean, we look back at the German Nazi coins that are, you know, you can buy those on eBay and regularly trade in them uh, today. You know, we talk about ancient coins last week with Peter Tompa. We've had Harlan Burke on the show a while back. You know, a lot of these emperors on these coins were not nice people and did horrible things. And so at what point, you know, what point does that stigma, you know, sort of melt away with history? 
and we can buy and trade these, but not, not these others. So it, it's just a, an interesting thought exercise to what is possible, what isn't, what, and, you know, and should it be, should it not be, you know, all those things. Well, let's talk about the show in general, though, because as you mentioned, you were there in July for a previous engagement. We were talking about back in July when we had the fun show. It was the first one out post-pandemic. Did you see any kind of change of attitude with the passage of time? I mean, it's no longer the first show back, and now we're starting to see folks are going to more and more shows. Did you start to see a sense of normalcy or anything different than what you experienced when you were there in July? Um, fewer masks this time. I, I didn't see many masks and, um, myself, I decided not to wear one. It was just, uh, uncomfortable and I've been wearing masks for a long time and all that. But, um, you know, the other, no, they're really, I mean, it looked like, I mean, and, and the show floor is, is, wide open anyway. So, I mean, it's, it's not, um, that wasn't new as far as, you know, they didn't, it didn't look like anything differently because we're still on the tail end or middle of a pandemic, whatever. I mean, it was, it just looked like a coin show. And for the most part, I mean, there were still folks with masks. Some of the dealers had masks, but you know, you know, there was a lot of decent activity. I was disappointed to see so many folks had left by Friday afternoon. Uh, you know, this show is Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and you always have that with a show that people leave early. The wholesale side, the dealers that come in, there's folks who got in there Monday and Tuesday to deal. And by, you know, Friday at noon, they were they were finished. They had done their business. They, you know, they're not focused as much on the retail side. There were a lot of empties uh, Friday afternoon. And, and it's, it's something that is just endemic to the industry, uh, right? I mean, this is uh, a problem that, or a situation that has existed forever. So it's nothing new in that regard, but I was hoping that um, it wouldn't be as pronounced as it was. My estimate, and I didn't count, this is just gut feeling, and I have a big gut, so it's a big feeling, but it could be very wrong. Uh, It was probably 30%, a third of the, you know, maybe 30 to 33% of the booths were empty by uh, Friday evening. But, you know, the good news is there were plenty of places to still shop on Saturday, and um, one could have, if just doing world coins, one could have spent the whole day Saturday looking at world coins and not seen it all. So there was still plenty of places to buy, but perception-wise, it did, you know, did have some holes, if you will. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, and that's going to be. It's going to take a while for things to stabilize. But again, it appears as if some of the situations that were known before are still very much there. And of course, everybody has their own way of doing business and the reasons for doing business. And this, is, I can safely say, that uh, early departure is not unique to the uh, numismatic hobby. It also happens in other areas as well. As certain places where the final day of a multi-day show is not necessarily the place to go. In some cases, it becomes the place to get the best bargains. If you're looking for bargains, if somebody's trying to reduce inventory, those that have stuck around to the last day might be the ones that are actually 
reducing the inventory and offering the better prices. But that's on a case-by-case basis. Certainly, it remains to be seen. Well, you know, let's go ahead and take a look back in time now as we talked about the present here. But let's go ahead and take a look back in time to see what was going on in the world of numismatics, the vast world of numismatics, and this day in history. So I love this particular note just because, well, gosh, there's... um, a couple Civil War-related, Confederate-related pieces that happened this uh, week in history, this day in history. Uh, one of them is November 14th, 1863. That was when a publication or book called The Living Age reported that Confederate officers invading Chambersburg, Pennsylvania during the Gettysburg campaign forced local shop owners to receive Confederate money or Confederate IOUs. Uh, the idea of money during wartime and, um, you know, certainly we know the rise of Civil War tokens and encased uh, postage stamps and and script and all these things, you know, war, the duress of war breeds the necessity of invention to uh, create stand-in currencies in Pennsylvania, which my memory serves correct, would have been a union uh, state. Yet here's Confederate money being forced to be used locally uh, in 1863. And then we go almost exactly a year later, uh, November 13th, 1864. That was when Colonel Jameson's brigade of the CSA hanged three men near a camp at Prairie Grove, Arkansas, for possessing a counterfeit $50 note, which was later proven to be genuine. Whoops. Um, I, I find that particularly interesting because one of the delights of the show was I got to meet Robert Calderman, and he showed Landon, myself as well, a, a piece of continental currency or colonial currency that has that was printed by ben franklin and it has to counterfeit is death all capitalized death and so here's a very real instance uh you know 100 or so years almost later where uh, alleged counterfeiting cost uh, three men their lives and and it was uh unfortunately for not an injustice served because the note was genuine. So the the synergy of those two pieces with uh, seeing that note at the show, I, I had to, um, I had to key in on that. So that was, that was, uh, I found, uh, take particular delight in that. Then, you know, this week in coin world history, we go to the November 12, 2012. I think 2012 was referenced by our interview subject, Dr. Jesse Kraft. If I'm mistaken, well, I suppose you'll give me a mulligan. But in that issue, uh, as Larry helpfully pointed out to me, hey, you had a, a cover story. And I did. It was about a gold coin hoard found in the United Kingdom, uh, 159 gold solidus, solidi from late Roman Empire. And most of these coins came from the reigns of Honorius and his brother Arcadius and Italian mints like Milan. Coin hoards fascinate us. The human desire to safeguard wealth and to you know hold on to things is something that goes back to ancient times. And um, you know, this hoard was buried 
And uh, for one reason or another, did somebody die in battle? Did somebody forget where it was buried? Whatever the case may be, uh, only to be found uh, 1,400, yeah, 1,600 years later, as, as this turned out to be the case. We do continue to talk about hordes today when they are discovered. So that was um, special to see that story and look back in time at that. Awesome. So taking a look at the letters from that very same November 12th issue, one of the letters comes from, of all places, St. Louis. And it says, Splurging for the Economy. This is from 2012. After filling two albums with state quarters from circulation, I plan to do the same when the America the Beautiful Quarter Dollar Series was first announced. However, I held back from buying the albums when the Federal Reserve indicated that, because of the recession, the number of new quarters it would need from the Mint would be drastically reduced. The number of America the Beautiful quarters I found over the past two years could literally be counted on one hand. Then, beginning this fall, I began to see a variety of them with comparative regularity. It may be another indicator that our economy is slowly improving since the Federal Reserve is needing to put more quarters into circulation. I now feel confident enough that their availability will continue to pick up to finally splurge on two new albums, thus doing my little bit to spur the economy on. A message from Patrick Cleaver of St. Louis. And it kind of hit a resonant chord with me because I'm still missing 13 Ds and 3 Ps from completing my own state quarter albums. We won't even get into what I need for the America the Beautiful albums. One other letter came to us from someone from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, and it says, Tired of higher mint costs. It seems every time that I open CoinWorld, I read that the U.S. Mint is raising prices again. Haven't done that in a little while yet. I know that the Mint has expenses such as product increases and payroll to meet. However, some of these increases are just ridiculous. Some prices increase by as much as $5 or more. Makes me think about the metal increase of earlier this year. Increases such as the most recent ones for the silver coins just drive customers away. I myself will not pay some of these price increases. I would think that the Mint would rather have the sales rather than no sales. The deputy director of the Mint needs to get more involved in price increases. If a person would look at the bottom line of the United States Mint, you would find out that it's doing very well compared to other government agencies. So why all the increases? Let's not penalize the public who purchases these products from the Mint. Find other ways to make up the differences rather than penalize the customers who purchase the products. It seems like the Mint is run the same way all other government agencies are run, Mint officials make the public pay for all the shortcomings rather than find things internal to reduce cost. Maybe the Mint needs a change in top management to make it run more efficiently than it does now. Something needs to be done before more customers cancel their orders. I know that this is a very sensitive subject, but it needs to be addressed before things get really bad. Ronald Ivey, Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Wow. There you have it. Cool. Hey, more... more. Uh kvetching at the mint so i mean what a what a shock right yeah. <laughs> yeah it's um one of those things that um happens uh regardless of what year we pick there's bound to be a letter uh with some of those concerns addressed so the more things change the more they stay the same i think it's about time for you to provide an answer to a trivia question 
And I'm not feeling confident today, but here we go. And then I'll ask another. So last week, last episode, I asked you about what is considered to be the oldest coin type in the world. Uh, for this, you know, you can answer the type, but then tell me what uh, what you think as far as when it was made, where it was made, that sort of thing. Because, you know, don't just want to say, oh, it's this. You know, we need to know the context around it. So what do you think? No, I, I'm going to guess. I mean, it's something probably biblical is my guess. I mean, I'm going to go back to like the Lydia or the widow's mite or something along that line. Lydia is correct. It's not biblical necessarily, uh, but the according to many different scholars, the oldest coin in the world is the Lydian stator, and these were made of a mix of gold and silver called electrum around 600 BC in the kingdom of Lydia in the modern country of Turkey. So that's uh, fun coin. You can, uh, you know, they're still out there in the market, although, you know, the ability to get them may be, you know, in question going forward as different, you know, as you heard last episode with Peter Tompa's different um, import restrictions uh, may be applied, but uh, that is the case uh, in any event. So because we talked to Jesse Kraft of the American Numismatic Society, the ANS, I have an ANS related question. There is a, a famous ANS member of in history who bequeathed an annual award to artist for lifetime achievement in medallic art. And that's so appropriate because we talked to Jesse about the medallic art company. So what is this award named? And, you know, it has the name of this person. And uh, can you tell me anything about the individual for whom it is named? And that is, that is what I'm uh, looking for this time this week. And you can think about that as uh, you listen to Dr. Kraft explore the Medallic Art Company history and all that and what the ANS is doing with it. The Coin World Podcast is delighted today to be joined by Dr. Jesse Kraft, who is a curator at the American Numismatic Society. Did I get that right? Yes, you did. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. The reason we're talking to you today is because of your work on the Medallic Art Company archives. But before we delve into that, I want to, as important as that is and fun as that is, uh, can you talk about what brought you to the ANS, how long you've been there, and how you got started uh, with the, you know, such an august organization? Sure. So I've been a, an assistant curator here at the ANS for two years. In fact, tomorrow will be my two-year anniversary. So uh, happy about that. Awesome. Uh, but I have been affiliated with the ANS since about 2013. I did two different internships here. And then they also hold a summer seminar for graduate students that I did in 2017. So I was kind of continually keeping my foot in the door until I finished graduate school. And yeah, it was kind of gearing up uh, just for this knowing that you needed a PhD to be a curator here. So awesome. Uh, so I hope there's cake tomorrow. Uh, you're <laughs> you're uh, mentioning the Newman seminar. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's a, a name that uh, some collectors 
will certainly be familiar with. And so you've been formally at the ANS for two years. And it, am I understanding it correctly? You sort of were brought in to work on Medallic Art Company archives? or, or was uh, No, not just that. I, yeah, not just that. I mean, I'm mean, Anything in the Western Hemisphere, uh, that is an official, you know, uh, curator position that they do have here, a North and South American curator, and it's been vacant for a few years. And uh, it was kind of just perfect timing that I graduated, you know, from graduate school, and uh, they kind of opened it up, uh, not only to, you know, be a curator for the the entire, you know, collection, but uh, for Mako as well, in particular. It had to be a little bit of a challenge to come into a vacant position when you did take that. So how much of a challenge was that? It seems to me you're not afraid of challenges. No, I'm, I'm not. You're right. Uh, I enjoy it. I tend to strive under pressure a little bit. But um, yeah, some aspects of the collection have been interesting to go through because, I mean, they literally haven't been looked at in, in 20, 30 years and uh, are, are quite you know disorganized as such. So, you know, even just walking around the vault and, and reorganizing things that, you know, people haven't looked that in, in quite a while is a part of my daily task. So, you know, there's no bigger name in American medallic art than medallic art company, Mako for short. Uh, this is a company that was founded around, I want to say 1907, spent considerable time in New York City, as well as uh, then Danbury, Connecticut, and then Dayton, Nevada, which is where it ended up when the company um went bankrupt, I think it was like three years ago, 2018. So the ANS bought this collection out of bankruptcy. Um, can you talk about how that fell into place? I mean, it, it's rather, from my understanding, it was it was just fortuitous timing that the ANS became aware of this and was able to act quickly to save what is an enormous repository of information and value for researchers and collectors sort of in a, I won't say Hail Mary, but it was, it was a scramble to, to do this. Can you walk us through that process? Sure. First, kind of like to say that the Medallic Art Company isn't actually quite gone. Uh, in the bankruptcy auction uh, that we purchased the archives under uh, Metalcraft Company, who is up in uh, Wisconsin, right outside of Green, or really in Green Bay, purchased the production rights for Mako. Uh, so when they produce a Mako metal, it is still a Mako metal, which is kind of interesting. So that lineage isn't yet broken. Um, and the few moves uh, that they made were also in the process of change of ownership. So this isn't the first time that they changed ownership. Uh, and some of them have not been under necessarily the most uh, shining moments in, in the company's career either. They weren't all necessarily bankruptcies, but but that when you hear bankruptcy, you kind of think of the end of the company. But you know, uh, the basis for a bankruptcy is for a company to rebound. You know, once you file bankruptcy, you're able to rebound. And when now that they're under the medallic, I'm sorry, the metalcraft ownership, you know, that this part of the rebound. So the lineage is still in the process of continuing uh, under the bankruptcy auction a lot of the physical objects that made that medallic art company owns uh, were sold off. And that's what we purchased. Uh, you know, we purchased the, the dyes, the, or most of the dyes, all of the dye shells and a lot of the uh, remaining paper archives. Unfortunately, a lot of those paper archives uh, from the different subsequent moves were lost, literally thrown out. So a lot of the paperwork that we have 
uh, doesn't go before 1973, which is when they moved from New York to uh, Connecticut, the first major move, unfortunately. Do have some uh, things before that, but, but not a whole lot. That's the unfortunate part about it. But yeah, aside from that, uh, you know, it's, it's been nothing short of enlightening. Uh, you know, it is a, a massive, massive uh, collection. You know, it is a, a thrill to go through, uh, despite the fact that, you know, it, it did, uh, it was kind of a calamity of, of a situation that allowed it to happen for us. You know, the point to be made here, too, is when you mention how massive this is, I, it, that's the thing that I really couldn't get my head around from uh, the descriptions and from the uh, previous blog posts and all that. I couldn't get my head around how massive that is. And now just imagine what would have happened if the paperwork from pre-73 had been there. But the idea is we're having this discussion now in late 2021. But this is not the original timeline that uh, you, the organizers had in mind for this. Tell me what about the setbacks that uh, COVID created for you? Oh, yeah. Well, COVID, I mean, you know, shut down the world. So it certainly shut down any plans we had with, with Mako. Um, I mean, by this point, we had hoped to have, you know, the dye shells, uh, which I'd moved out here in, um, in July from Nevada to uh, New York. We'd hoped to have that, you know, last year. And the dyes, which we haven't even really begun to think about, which all of them are at Metalcraft now in Wisconsin, um, you know, we're only really, you know, we're in contact with them and they know that we want to start doing things with them. But uh, yeah, it, it certainly put put us behind schedule with things. But And you mentioned Metalcraft. They uh, helped you as far as storing things and, you know, helping make this process go a little smoother, right? Correct. Yeah, they um, they have physical storage of all the dyes themselves right now and they are actually part owner of them. Um, in the bankruptcy auction, uh, they purchased, I think it was something like 15 years prior to the bankruptcy. So it was, uh, you know, 2016 and, and prior to that, or maybe it was 20 years or something like that. And then we got everything prior to that. So there was, when it comes to the dives, there are, already was kind of this co-ownership between the ANS and, um, and Metalcraft. So the, um, there was really a, a Herculean effort to get this collection from Nevada to Manhattan, or rather um, Brooklyn. Clearly, the collection merited such an outsized effort. Besides COVID delaying things, then you had, um, you had to go out there and uh, really pick up the pieces of where things had been left off two years ago or, or whatever when this was sold. Um, how, how much... Um, went into that as far as effort and hassle and uh, thinking, because there was, you had to be strategic about how you did this and, and you were able to take four semis down to three. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, in 2018, when all this stuff was packed up after we purchased it from the bankruptcy auction, uh, time was limited and, um, you know, they tried to get everything packaged up uh, securely and in a proper order. Uh, but I think they only had like two and a half weeks to do this. And that included taking high resolution digital photographs of both sides of every single object. Uh, so they actually, uh, you know, I'm sure that you've seen pictures in the blog posts. I mean, they had a, literally a team of a dozen college students working this. And, and, you know, in the end, they came damn close, but didn't quite finish it. Um, you know, no fault of anybody's. So you're absolutely correct. You know, that those two weeks that I went out there, you know, it was trying to, uh, organize a massive, you know, 20, you know, close to 20,000 object collection that I 
had zero access to and had never seen in my life. And it was uh, very difficult to, to say the least. Um, you know, we had those digital photographs that they took. So, you know, it literally took a few weeks of going through photograph by photograph and uh, kind of making uh, some uh, executive decisions on, uh, you know, what we want to do with them and so on and so forth. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of planning involved. Um, and then, you know, you have to get the trucks in line. I've never dealt with trucking companies before. So mm -hmm. that was a, a complete experience unto itself. Uh, which included a, a, a short semi-ride around a few blocks of Brooklyn, which was a crazy experience. Uh, <laughs> you can read a little bit about it in the blog post. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting. You know, it was crazy, to say the least. And now, an undertaking like this, obviously, you mentioned before the dozen or so college students helping out. How many people were involved outside of the ANS? And uh, are, were you the only representative of the ANS involved with this? Yeah, those dozen students, that was back in 2018, uh, so I had nothing to do with them. When I went out there, it was, it was me. Um, I was the only representative that went out um, to Nevada from New York, uh, Rob Vigdevine, who is an absolute essential um, you know, component of the entire move. He, helped, he, he was the only person uh, you know, out there in Nevada who did, in fact, um, you know, help out with the 2018 move as well as, you know, helping me move. And also he worked for Northwest Territorial Mint for, you know, over a decade, um, you know, which was the owner of Mako when it went, finally went bankrupt. So he had, you know, probably the most intimate knowledge with that collection that I could have asked for. Um, you know, even just different anomalies on different production uh, methods between one die shell over another die shell, uh, he knew, you know, how they were produced and why the little differences were. And so that, you know, nothing short of completely uh, integral to the future of this collection was, was Rob Victorine. So I'm fairly certain that I had reached out to him 10 years ago or so for something. And, oh, my Constance Ortmayer story. I think that's what it was. And um, he proved to be, as you acknowledge here, you know, uh, amiable and, and helpful and, and all that. So one of the things <laughs> I discovered in, in doing digging around in what you have presented online so far is I've dated a medal that I found here in St. Louis that shows Stan Musial and that was struck for a local charity. I've been able to figure out, oh, it was made in, you know, 2006 or whatever, you know, because I, I, I knew when I bought it earlier this year, it's, you know, it has Mako on the edge and, and the stylistically, it looks like it, although it could have been just as well metalcraft. They do some great work, uh, certainly. What are some of the things that the surprises you've found? And then we can transition into, um, you know, how this is going to be. There's pieces that you won't keep. There's pieces that will be celebrated. And then there's this whole you know, gulf in between of, of stuff that has to be determined, the, the orange boxes. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, one thing, you know, that you make a really valid point about, you know, what the Mako archives, even the stuff that we have been able to put online so far, which, you know, isn't everything by any means. And, you know, we hope to do so much more with it is the ability for collectors to find in such an obscure Mako metal and properly identify it which is something that no collector was able to do before this because a complete catalog of Mako material doesn't exist. It still doesn't exist. The catalog that we have online is a great start and you know that's what we're going to edit. And that is actually the document that Mako used 
internally prior to the bankruptcy. So it is an actual MAKO document, um, mm -hmm. but it's just riddled with errors. Uh, you know, stuff that I have found, you know, over the past two years going through it, things that other collectors have picked up and, and sent me information on while they themselves have been in the process of uh, researching a particular metal. All errors aside, it is a great, great first step. And it, you know, it allowed you to ID your Stan Musial medal. You know, that's the first thing that, you know, we really wanted to get out uh, to the world uh, for, you know, metallic art uh, company collectors is, is just, you know, point A of being able to ID your metal. And, you know, that's, that's been probably the, the largest thing that I get fielded on uh, question-wise daily is, is various Mako medals. And uh, instead of me having to research it now, I just send them the link to the, to the online archive and say, research it yourself. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to be a jerk about it, but, you know, I don't want to take the fun out of research from these people as yeah. well. Well, I still need to figure out how many of these things were made and in what metals, you know, what silver, <laughs> gold, whatever. <laughs> I know I have a bronze, but, but anyway, what, what are some of the things that have been really revelatory, just amazing to come across? Yeah, one of my favorite things, I mean, my mother is an artist as well. I come from a whole family of artists. So, you know, the, you know just looking at these different forms of art has been truly inspirational, if, if nothing else. Uh, my mother is a fan of Salvador Dali. Um, and, you know, not really well known that Mako actually used a series of Dali uh, works to make medals with in 19, uh, 1973 for the 12 tribes of, of Israel. So coming across them, I had no idea that they existed when I came across them. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, you know, he's Dali is very distinctive. I'm like, you know, somebody uh, had their Dali hat on that day when they were making, when they were sculpting. And so I'm looking it up who it is. And, and sure enough, Salvador Dali's name is listed as the sculptor. So I'm like, oh, that is absolutely amazing. You know, it kind of just completed everything for me. Uh, so that was, that was a great experience, I think. Um, yeah, th those Dali medals are fun. I, in fact, um, managed to get a set of them or several pieces of them a few years ago. And they were lumped in with a bunch of Israel government items. And I thought that there's no way. And sure enough, you know, you look and you see Mako and it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> yeah. this is really cool. You know, cause how often can you have a piece to, you know, connect it to somebody that famous. Um, so, so that was one thing you learned. Uh, you also learned uh, don't hand Gilles a pallet Jack. What else, what else did you learn? <laughs> Yeah, don't. Uh, yeah, Gilles uh, likes to take his time with the pallet jack. So, uh, I mean, it was just such an enriching experience all the way around. I mean, it was one of those things where as much planning as you think you could do, there was never enough because it just seemed like every single step of the way was kind of like a new thing that you didn't even ex expect to have to plan for, um, you know, whether it was shipping delays or, you know, or you know, even something simple like the size of the hallway in uh, in you know our new Brooklyn storage absolutely proved to to prove be difficult for us for you know one of the moves. So you know, there's little things like that that you can't plan for, but uh, ultimately have to uh, you know succeed in the end. I would think that would be a challenge to even find a storage space that you would need for such a massive collection in the city. How difficult was that? That was. Surprisingly easy. Um, it, it honestly was. I thought that was going to be extremely difficult as well. And it was, you know, obviously one of the first things that we had to look for. And so, um, you know, not to necessarily promote any online real estates. 
company website, so I won't, but I went to a major one and uh, set in my parameters that I wanted, you know, whether it was price, square footage, location, X, Y, and Z. And it narrowed it down to two locations for me. Uh, one of them was an outside unit where, you know, if someone really wanted to break in, all they would have to do is, you know, pull up the outside garage door really hard. So that narrowed it down to one location for us. Uh, went there, looked at it, liked it, and signed the lease within a few weeks. So uh, it, that was surprisingly easy. Um, and, uh, you know, if the whole move went as easy as that did, uh, I probably wouldn't have to have written a blog post about it because it wouldn't have been anything extraordinary. I got to take you back to the beginning of your trip out to uh, the location out there in Nevada. You had obviously seen some of the digital images, but now you were seeing it firsthand in, you know, third dimension. How did you find the condition of these assets when you arrived? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, the first one, the first die shell that I saw uh, when I walked in was not in a box and it was in 1909. It was 1909-005 is the Mako die number. It was a uh, Royne Lincoln piece fairly famous one. And it had uh, a big giant chunk taken out of the side, like, uh, you know, Bigfoot had taken a bite out of it or something like that. So uh, that was a little disheartening. I did keep it not only for the historical significance of it as, you know, a 1909 Lincoln medal, but also, uh, you know, even a broken piece can give you some insight into how a piece is made. You know, you actually get the, the inside of the Galvano and, you know, it was, you know, heartbreaking to see again, but, but still I kept it. You know, it was a good, good piece in my opinion. Uh, that said, most of the uh, Galvanos were in uh, good condition, despite the fact that they, you know, have sat in boxes for a few years, uh, you know, for decades before that they're, you know, or, you know, a decade and a half, they're in the middle of the desert, you know, with sand, wind, uh, you know, et cetera. And then moved around, you know, most of them had moved around the country several times. So everything, you know, all things considered, they were in decent condition. So there was a lot of raw effort, labor force, you know, there, there was a lot of, I, I won't say manpower, but person power, you know, there was a lot of heavy lifting and all that to be done uh, physically, legitimately, but you still have a lot of heavy lifting, at least academically to do where in the timeline are we as far as understanding what exists and then presenting it to the, the collector and the public? Right. Uh, I've given myself a five-year timeline, which seems like a long time, and, and it is, but it's going to fly by for the die shells to get them 100% organized, uh, cataloged, and presented to the world. You know, again, five years is a long time, but you know, I, I unfortunately can't dedicate every day of the week to it. Um, and it is uh, just me. I do have one volunteer uh, working with me right now, but uh, they are actually in, in school. So they're not working with me right now, um, but uh, you know, do have plans with working them in the future again. Um, so, you know, time is somewhat, you know, you have to schedule it and so on and so forth. And just again, the, the monstrosity, um, you know, the gargantuan size of this collection, it's gonna take a while. And plus, when we got it, it wasn't in perfect order anymore. I mean, it's, you know, it was completely shuffled. Yeah, you, you did a lot of work as, as the blog details. And, and we'll, um, if we can, maybe we can link to those posts. I, I, wanna, I want this to stand on its own for people who maybe can't go to look at the blog, though. I mean, you know, the, it must have just been two weeks of 
12 hour days in the bottom. Yeah, just, yeah. Other than the, the day to go hike and see the Carson city Mint, which is still on my list of, of things to do. So the metal, you know, the, the, Coining press number one that's in action there. Did you actually get to strike uh, a medal yourself? Didn't, unfortunately. They no. have a press operator there. You know, uh, I yeah. hoped that that would be the case. You know, maybe my ANS position would let me get push <laughs> the button, but uh, that wasn't that didn't happen that day. Oh it was completely fine. Uh, you know, I did. You know, there is like a, a little wooden partition, even with plexiglass, which I'm assuming for COVID. But he was kind enough to, to let me go behind that to take that nice picture. Uh, so that was as close as I was able to get to, to old number one. Uh, but it still was an amazing experience just to see it happen and, and everything else and the historical significance behind that press. It was, it was awesome. awesome. And I mean, Carson City itself is such a small city. Uh, you know, you can drive through it in, in you know, the blink of the eye, which is amazing for, for it being a, an actual capital of a state, you know. I think it used to be the smallest uh, city geographically, capital city in the country until they made the whole Carson County into the city. And then it, overnight it became the largest geographical city <laughs> in the country. So. Uh, but still you can drive through the, the city limits uh, you know, very quickly. And then Carson City Men is, is just you know, right in the middle of it. Really cool building. Awesome. So uh, what next? I mean, you're going to be traveling probably to shows to share the story of both Mako, as well as the, you know, the ANS, uh, ANS's larger efforts. What should we be looking for as far as developments, both from the Mako archives and organizationally? Yeah, I really want to, you know, tighten up the, um, you know, the digital outreach that we have with Mako. You know, getting the website tightened up um, and, you know, a little bit more presentable. Uh, get all the errors fixed out. Um, eventually, we want to have a full-fledged catalog, you know, get, get completely rid of the, the catalog that's up there now and have it, you know, kind of like a Mantis-based system, uh, the ANS uh, digital archives that we have for, for our main collection have a similar setup to that. Um, so that's what we want to do as far as, uh, you know, presenting the collection, definitely going to a lot of shows and, uh, you know, performing outreach that way. I'm actually in the process of writing an article for the ANS magazine uh, right now on um, dye shells, uh, kind of explaining that a little bit more. If, if you actually Google dye shells or go to the Newman Numismatic Portal and, and search for dye shells, there are surprisingly, there's surprisingly little information about them and I think are really one of the, the lesser understood components of the medallic production process or coin production process. You know, we know what a Galvano is, um, but you know, how is it used in, in the actual process? Most of the galvanos that people are used to are, are the finished ones that are, you know, mounted on pieces of wood and, and used as decorations and they're beautiful pieces of art, but, you know, just different, um, you know, made for a different reason than, than what these dye shells were. And if you see a picture of these Mako production dye shells, you know, you can see that they're, that they're straight industrial production pieces and not intended to be finished works of art by any means. Awesome. So how can listeners support this project and, and the ANS in general? The ANS is a nonprofit-based organization, so we do accept donations, of course. Um, I do receive many, many informational emails from collectors. Uh, I do please encourage those. Um, I have enjoyed all of the conversations that I've had regarding MAKO over the past few years and, and really hope that they keep going. Uh, not only to, you know, 
help the INS get towards its goal of you know completing this gargantuan project, but also you know just to uh, form a maker community that that has already existed, but kind of formalize it uh, you know under the INS umbrella. Yes, and and the ANS uh, is supported by membership as well, so that is a, a good outlet. I'm going to leave that as the last word. Then I, I thank you so much for all of this. Uh, certainly taking the time, but just you know that there's somebody out there doing this kind of work uh, that's supported by the hobby to promote and enhance our understanding of uh, medallic art because it is. Uh, metals are just such a, I think, often too overlooked area of the hobby. And, and certainly it thrills me. I'm a big metal guy to know that this is ongoing. Excellent. Excellent. Well, next time you're in New York City, by all means, you know, head on down to the INS and I'd be more than happy to give you a, a tour of anything makeup related or, or any other, anything else that you want to see. Both of you, Jeff. Awesome. Of awesome. Thank you. That was our interview with Dr. Jesse Kraft of the American Numismatic Society. Boy, what, what a neat project they're working on. And um, so exciting to see uh, research, even in modern areas, uh, get supported in such a way. It's hard to imagine such the scope that that was involved with and just kind of wrap your heads around being involved and just how important that's going to be moving forward here. It's just uh, the idea that the commitment and uh, that has been shown and will continue to be shown is just going to benefit you know generations to come here. It's just exciting to know that we have caretakers that care so much about what we're doing here that they're putting so much effort into it that it's it's exciting. And I mean, that that's happening on a lot of fronts. This is just an example of just how passionate people can be uh, surrounding this particular hobby. This is great. We obviously think you share the passion if you're showing up here every week or most weeks to listen. Uh, we thank you for that. We thank Coin World Plus for allowing us to be here. And, uh, you know, let us know if you see us at a show or drop us an email or whatever, what you would like to see because we're here to have fun and share the great hobby with everyone on the other end. Well, indeed it is, and we do appreciate all the suggestions, and make sure you drop us a line here. So we've got some more exciting uh, news coming your way in future podcast episodes, but in the meantime, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week. Coin World Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about Coin World Plus at coinworldplus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.